one of the great things about going to school online is the ability to live at home, to live where you are, to not have to move, and to continue to work. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program at goclio.com. SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law and firm manager for LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Bob, I know you read a couple of blogs. I do. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And today, Bob, we're going to talk about uh, a favorite topic for law students uh, and young lawyers and people trying to figure out where they're going to go to school. Uh, with tuition costs for traditional law schools on the rise and law students struggling to pay off debt, online legal education can be an alternative for some people. But according to a U.S. News & World Report article by Brian Burns said, online JD programs are not accredited by the American Bar Association, and graduates of the programs are eligible only to take the California Bar Exam because it is the only state in which online law schools can officially register. Although there are some states that make exceptions on a case-by-case basis. Well, there are a number of uh, unaccredited traditional and online law schools registered in California. If a student from an unaccredited law school decides to continue on with his or her legal education, they must pass the state's first-year law student's exam, better known in California as the baby bar. Uh, So is online legal education catching on uh, or are traditional law schools here to stay? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll take a look at online law schools, accreditation, and what the future holds for online legal education. And with us today is Ellen Murphy, the program director for Concord Law School's Small Business Practice, LLM, as well as the developer and professor for the law school's cross-profession ethics course. Prior to joining Concord, Ellen served as the executive director for Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, a private nonprofit assistance program serving the Massachusetts Bar and Bench, and helped develop and establish Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Program. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ellen. Thanks very much, Craig. Glad to be here. And joining us next today is Ross Mitchell. Uh, in, in 2008, Ross, uh, then a 2004 graduate of Concord Law School, Kaplan University, uh, and a licensed attorney in California, sued the Board of Bar Examiners in Massachusetts for the right to sit for the state bar exam. Uh, he was uh, initially prohibited from doing so because he hadn't attended an ABA-accredited law school. Uh, in a uh, historic uh, decision, really, uh, the Massachusetts uh, Supreme Judicial Court ruled 6-1 to one in favor of Ross, citing his excellent law school record and his ability uh, in representing himself before the court in, in this very case. Uh, in the spring of 2008, Ross was uh, one of the first four online educated attorneys to be sworn in uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court's bar in open court. Uh, he went on to pass the Massachusetts bar exam in February 2009 and is now an attorney based in Newton, Massachusetts. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ross. 
Thanks very much, Bob. It's good to be here. Well, and in, in, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, my book that I referenced in the beginning was published by Kaplan Publishing, uh, which is an arm of the school that uh, Ross attended. But, Alan, before uh, we get too far into the program, uh, let's talk a little bit about Concord Law School. I believe it was launched in 1998 and it started with eight students. Now it has about 1,500. Can you explain the rise in the popularity for online legal education? Uh, you bet. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that we at Concord um, really appreciate is the the difficulty that it, that it can be for students to attend law school in the in a, in a traditional setting, in the bricks and mortar setting, in what we often refer to in the distance world as the butts and seats model. Um, this can be for a for a whole host of reasons. Um, not only just tuition cost, but also just uh, lifestyle. You know, one of the one of the great things about going to school online is the ability to live at home, to live where you are, to not have to move, and to continue to work. So, when you're thinking about it from an economic standpoint, which is one of the benefits, and and we believe one of the factors of the rise in online education, um, when you think about it economically, not only is tuition cheaper, but students are able to save money by living at home and not lose the income of having to stop working. I also think that it's not just an economic decision, but it is the kind of education that you get at Concord. And I'm sure Ross can speak to this, but one of the things that we're seeing and one of the things that the ABA is pushing for is more of an equal balance of practice and ethics along with doctrine. So it's not just it's no longer just theoretical. Um, we want we want students to come out of law school with practical skills. And that's one of the things we do very well at Concord and I believe one of the reasons for the rise in the number of students at our school is the kind of education and curriculum that we have. Oh, Ross, tell us tell us your story. Tell us how it was that you came to go to an online law school. Sure. Well, it was uh, early 2000 actually it was just just around Christmas time in uh, 1999, uh, and I was uh, listening to uh, an NPR program, uh, Talk of the Nation, and I heard the founding dean of Concord talking about this online law school. Uh, and I had always had a, an interest in the law and kind of a, a dream about someday maybe becoming a lawyer, but it, it just wasn't really practical for me uh, for two reasons. One is uh, I had not actually gone to college uh and so i didn't have a degree uh bachelor's degree and uh, uh i didn't have the time i had a at that time pretty thriving computer uh, consulting practice so um i i applied online to concord right then and there and then uh was immediately uh, rejected because of my lack of a college degree but eventually uh, i learned that there was in in california a, a waiver program that involved uh uh, passing certain certain tests, so I eventually was accepted into the program, and um, I loved it. <laughs> I spent four years studying, uh, probably uh, to the exclusion of lots of other things that I should have been doing, but ended up uh, graduating in 2004. I was uh, the valedictorian of my class, which was a great honor, uh, and uh, got to take the the bar exam in in 2004. Passed it. And was sworn in uh, by uh, actually by a federal judge here in Massachusetts for whom I had interned, Judge Young, who was the chief judge of the federal district court in Massachusetts. 
he swore me into the California bar in Massachusetts. And from there, uh, my story gets more complicated as I attempted to get into the Massachusetts bar. Well, Ross, one of, and one of the things, and maybe uh, Ellen can comment on this as well, but one of the things that lawyers, at least in California, are concerned with is that while we recognize that there are, are excellent students and excellent lawyers like you who attend online law schools, traditionally, uh, here in California, our bar pass rate is 25%. Compared to the, for example, I also took the bar in Iowa, and the bar pass rate in Iowa is upwards of 80%. Um, largely, the difference is attributed to uh, online students who are unaccredited law schools, even not necessarily online, but also those who attend regular uh, butts-in-seat uh, uh law schools, but are not accredited by the uh, American Bar Association. Ellen, how do you respond to the the significance of the of the difference between such pass rates between the various states and with California's low pass rate being directly attributable to unaccredited law schools? Well, I think that as more and more, I think as legal education is available to more and more folks, there are obviously more and more folks um, taking, you know, taking the bar exam. We, of course, um, strive to keep our numbers up, get our numbers up. One of the things that I have found with the students that I teach is many of them are not necessarily going to law school to practice law. They are healthcare practitioners. They are airline pilots. They are small business owners. They are people who want to have a better understanding of how the law works in our uh you know, law-dominated society. And so their goal in attending is not necessarily um, to practice as Ross is practicing. Well, I would I would uh, uh, have a somewhat different view about this. Um, it's um, perhaps a bit controversial, but I think that it, this is less about the caliber of the schools and more about the caliber of the students who apply to the schools. Basically, if you had the if you had the choice between attending uh, and the means to attend an ABA accredited school where you could take the bar exam in any state, and where they're going to be very selective in terms of who uh, you know who they accept, uh, I think you end up with a a high caliber of, of student. Uh, the the for profit schools, the online schools, the uh, correspondence schools have pretty much an open-door policy from, from my experience, which is, I think, a good thing, by the way, because it allows people who might not look on the surface to be the kind of students who would do well to have a chance at going to law school. This is why the uh, the state bar created the baby bar in the first place, to uh, to let people know if they were not likely to, to succeed in, in law school. So I think you just don't have a, you know, by and although there are some great students uh, who go who go to Concord, you have a lot of people who are just not up at that level. And further, you have a lot of people, and I know some of them, who were happy to get a JD, but who didn't really want to study for the bar because they didn't they didn't feel uh, that they. Uh, that they needed to practice law. They just wanted to have the education. And so they say, well, I'll take the bar exam and see how I do. Well, you, nobody passes the California bar exam without studying uh, very, very hard. I think we had an example of the uh, former dean of, of Stanford who didn't pass on her first try. So it's an, it's an exam that you have to really take seriously. I'm curious, just sort of mechanically, how this works. I mean, I understand uh, it's all done virtually. It's it's done largely online, uh, I assume. Uh, but 
are you losing something in, in losing out on that sort of face-to-face uh, physical element? I mean, Ross, what was, what was your experience? Did, did you feel that there was some aspect of being shortchanged by not being able to interact with classmates and, no, and professors just, and others? No, it's actually, it's just the opposite. Um, and in fact, I can speak from uh, some, some decent experience now because my daughter just graduated from a brick-and-mortar law school uh, a few weeks ago. She went to Suffolk University Law School here in Boston, which is a fine school. She had a great education there. But I feel that I had a more thorough legal education at Concord. To, for example, uh, in her uh, constitutional law course, taught by a very, very good professor, they didn't have time to get into the First Amendment, which, you know, it sort of boggled my mind because it's something that we dealt with. That's very, not a very, very important one. They can skip right over that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it, it, you know, it's important, but you don't have time in these short courses. At Concord, what was really surprising to me is I didn't understand why some of the courses were four credits, some of them were, were six credits, some of them were eight credit courses. I didn't understand because they were all the same amount of work. They all took a year. We did every chapter in the book. We used the same books that they use at Harvard, the West, uh, you know, uh, case books and horn books. Um, and we and we basically covered every topic. I used to tell people that I thought Concord had an inferiority complex. They didn't want anybody to accuse them of not teaching some subjects, so they taught us everything. But in retrospect, I'm really glad to have experienced that. And on the from the standpoint of the interaction, which was also I think part of your question, uh, I have tons of really good friends that I've met online. I think everybody now knows that it's possible to develop uh, you know, meaningful relationships with people through uh, Skype and, and uh, emails and uh, telephone co- uh, contact. Many people uh, at Concord, when I, met, I, when I met them, I didn't know if I had met them or not, and neither did they, because we, we knew each other so well that uh, the fact, and we had even seen photos, so we didn't really recall whether or not we had met, but we we did, we did get to meet at the first year uh, uh, exam and also at the, uh, at the graduation. And I'd like to speak to that if I could, Bob. Um, Please, I Ellen. think one of the things that's important to note as we think about uh, distance education more broadly is that there are different models. At one end of the spectrum, there is what we would call a fully asynchronous model. You're working on your own all the time, self-paced, okay? You know, like not a correspondence school, but more closely aligned with that. At the other end of the model is a fully synchronous experience. Essentially, um, Wake Forest is doing this right now. They are they have a professor teaching um, using a Skype-like technology. It's essentially it's a WebEx and teaching. A group of students who are at home on their all computer on their computers, they all see each other, they interact just as they would. It's fully synchronous. We at Concord think the ideal model is in the middle of this continuum. It's a combination of asynchronous work that you do on your own, which is typically reading your materials, listening or watching pre-recorded audio lectures and videos, and then coming together, classmates and professors, for synchronous learning every, you know, two, three, however long, however the semester or trimester is structured, coming together with the group. So I think it's important that we that we recognize that online learning can occur in a lot of different ways. Another model, um, I know of a professor who actually team taught a course at a bricks and mortar school. So the professor was in state A, 
students were in state B in a classroom with their typical professor, and this professor was essentially streamed in. That's another model of distance learning. I would also say that um, the the way the program is structured is is far more uh, there's there's far more feedback than in a traditional law school course. For example, a, a typical Concord course when I was attending the school would involve a number of uh, ten or twenty question multiple choice uh, kind of uh, MBE style uh, uh, questions throughout the throughout the course and a number of essays, three or four essay uh, problems where you would submit your essays and then get them back graded and get feedback. And then there was always the opportunity to interact with your professor via the uh, the school's email system. And I always tell the story of this one con law, my favorite, one of my favorite professors, Mark Kaufman. Um, I sent him a I sent him a question, a constitutional law question, and I got back a six page answer, most of which had not been cut and pasted. It was uh, it was really customized to my to my specific question. So I never felt any sort of lack of of contact with people. My my wife, in fact, referred to it as having been married to the Matrix. She wrote an article about <laughs> about me sitting in my chair and having this exciting life somewhere else. Well, stay with us. We're going to take just a short break. We'll be back in just a moment to talk more about online legal education. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS-70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN.
It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. So nobody's reading your ads in the legal journals or magazines? Try your marketing with Legal Talk Network. Over 4 million listeners since launch. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, and our guests today are Ellen Murphy, the Program Director for Concord Law School's Small Business Practice, LLM, and Attorney Ross Mitchell, a graduate of Concord Law School at Kaplan University. Uh, one of the things I'm sure people are concerned about, Ellen, is what's the difference between uh, law professors in online schools and law professors in the bricks and mortar schools? Are the qualifications the same? Absolutely, because um, that's a that's a great question. I would, I, you know, the backgrounds of our professors at Concord are much like those of traditional law faculty. They research, they have their areas of interest, um, but but what I what, what we do have is a much higher percentage of practicing experts, which allows for a much richer experience from the standpoint of balancing practice with theory. Um, And this is not just Concord's idea that we think practice and theory is a good thing to blend. You know, we we all talk about ABA accreditation, and that's always kind of lurking. And and one of the the things to recognize is that the ABA rules are changing, and the ABA itself is going through a shift in how they accredit schools. Um, Those rules are, you know, in draft form and are in process. But one of the thrusts of these changes is this equal balance of practice and doctrine, which is precisely what we do and what we have, what we strive to do in all of our curriculum. I mean, one thing I'm curious about is, uh, I guess, the the future of on, online law schools. The you know, Ross, you you kind of fought this issue in Massachusetts and succeeded in, in gaining admission to the bar. I know there was at least one other case. I think it was in Georgia where uh, a graduate online law school uh, was, was denied uh, petition for uh, to take the bar exam or to be admitted to the bar. But one of the things the SJC uh, here in Massachusetts talked about in in your case, Ross, was uh, the the sort of the uh, the changing state of uh, accreditation standards, uh, or at least the potential for for change in in accreditation standards. Where where does this issue stand with the ABA? I know the ABA has come under a lot of attack late, lately, and there's been a lot of discussion about the ABA's role in the accreditation process. Uh, is the ABA looking at at this issue and uh, and what's it doing about it? Ellen, ask you that if you know. This is, and I certainly don't don't um, purport to speak for the ABA. But what I think this is is this is part of a larger discussion of the ABA of what is it you know what does the ABA look for when it's looking at accrediting the school? And historically, the ABA has looked at inputs. They've looked at how many books are in your library. They've looked at how many articles have your professors written. Where did they go to school? You know X Y Z. And what's happening now as we're changing to this model of a blend of practice and theory is the ABA is looking at outputs. Okay, and they're looking at what do the students know when they come out? What can they do? And, you know, as the ABA starts to look at that, it clearly opens the door 
for online law schools because if online law schools can provide those outputs, it's going to kind of be it's going to be a tough argument to say that um, you know just as a blanket rule you can't accredit an online law school. Can I say something about that too? Please. I think, I think uh, first of all, let me say that I think the ABA is a wonderful organization, and I don't mean that uh, facetiously. I really, I really do. Um, however, there's a long way to go because, for example, currently the ABA will not accredit a law school that does not have paper books. You have to have physical paper books in order to a big law library. You have to spend millions of dollars on that in order to get ABA accreditation, and they specifically state that online access to the same material is not a substitute for this requirement. This makes absolutely no sense, yet it is still one of the requirements for accreditation. I think the ABA, unfortunately, is a long way from recognizing the value of the kind of education that a school like Concord is delivering. You, you know, and, and not to defend the ABA, because I really don't know what their argument would be, but seemingly the presence of the paper books and large libraries and spending millions of dollars means an investment in a physical facility and uh, a commitment to some type of, you know, physical learning. And the thing that we really haven't talked about that, that causes me some concern is just how do you get the, the, to learn the, uh, the process of thinking, which is what actually I think law schools really teach you, and perhaps some in research, without the um, the in-person relationships and experience that occurs between a professor and a student. It just seems to me that an online substitute for that really misses the boat. Yeah, I but think that that Ross, I, I think that that that's a commonly held view, and I think it's um, um, not correct. Um, I think that there are other ways. There are many ways to skin a cat, and the Socratic method is, uh, you know, it's an interesting and valuable way to to learn to think like a lawyer. But it's not the only way, and certainly anybody who gets through the four-year program at Concord is is certainly thinking by as like a lawyer. You're thinking like a lawyer after the first three months. You're not going to make it if 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 you don't get it. When you argue, when you learn, basically thinking like a lawyer is learning to break things down and to analyze and to not not take a position and and to assume that that's the only way to view it. And you have to, to just to write an essay, you have to be able to take at least two points of view, if not more. You know, the majority view, the minority view, the, uh, you know, the MPC view, the, you know, common law view. You know, so I just don't see that as being a requirement. Uh, and and frankly, without being confrontational, the Concord professors are able to maximize the learning process because they'll ask a question online. Now, in, in a traditional class, you ask a question, somebody raises their hand or you call on somebody and one person gets to answer. At Concord, when we're having a what's referred to as a chat, the, the professor will ask a question, and everybody types in their response to the question, and then the professor can choose which ones to release. And if somebody says something really stupid, rather than embarrassing the person, he can send a or she can send a message, private message to that student. But it, more importantly, it tells the it tells the professor what people are getting and what they're not getting, and he can then tailor his his uh, his lesson to the actual requirements of the class based on their their specific level of knowledge. 
I was just going to say, even even in my uh, even in my day, uh, in my highly traditional law school education, I think some of the, the some of the professors who did not resort to pistol whipping were 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 some of the better ones in my school. Uh, I mean, the Socratic method in some ways was was dying has been dying a slow death for a long time, I think. And, uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there, I guess. Well, and I, and I'd like to add to Ross, and I think it also I think when we when 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 people who um, have not experienced an online classroom, and I invite anyone um, to contact me and, and experience an online class. But you know, I think what you what we also don't talk about and recognize are are the things that are so much easier to do. I mean, first there are students who, and I saw this in law school. You know, everybody is not the student uh, on the front row waving their hand, going "ooh ooh me, call on me," and that intimidates a lot of students. There are students. I see a much broader range of students participate in class, and it's not that they can hide; they're out there in front. You know, I can see their names. I can see when they're typing, and for for um, schools with that use a, a multiplex video platform, the teacher can actually see the students. So, in some ways, it's a much more intimate setting. And also, another real pro with online education is, with online learning, is the ability to bring in experts in a much easier way than in a bricks and mortar, butts and seats type of, uh, type of setting. I can sit in my house through my, through a conference call. I can have one, two, three federal judges at a time in my class talking to my students. Now, I can pull that off in a live classroom, but it's a lot harder. And it takes a much greater technology investment on the part of the school. Because you two know from doing your podcast, you know, it's the audio that's key. The audio doesn't work. And so to get a law school classroom mic'd and set up so that audio will work with three guest speakers coming in, that's a tough that's a tough thing to do and it's a huge expense. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So, Ross, let's start with you. Well, final thoughts is uh, keep an open mind, basically. Uh, this is a, was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, I commend online education to anyone who has uh, a desire to learn about the law and uh, for whom it's not possible to attend a, a law school or even somebody who who could attend a fixed facility law, law school. Quite frankly, it's my preference. Uh, contact information, you can uh, email me at ross at rossemitchell.com with two L's. Great. Thank you very much. And Ellen? Yes. Well, thank you guys for um, for having us and talking about what I think is a just a, just a terrific topic. I think you're going to see in the coming years, um, you're going to see the the cowboy schools like Concord um, continue to excel, and you're also going to see your more traditional schools move into um, various forms of online and distance offerings. I'm happy for anyone to reach out to me. It's e Murphy e m u r p h y at kaplan.edu. You know, I just wanted to mention uh, before we close, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but but Ellen, in addition to being a professor uh, at, at Concord Law School, is the program director for this uh, Concord's new small business practice LLM, which is which is not designed for uh, aspiring lawyers, but is designed for uh, for actual lawyers who want to. Uh, uh, add to their their knowledge of of the legal issues unique to small business. Is that is that right, Ellen? That's absolutely right, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to mention that. Well, thanks thanks to both of you for being on the program. It's really an interesting discussion, and we really appreciate your time and being with us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you.
Thanks, and thank you. And for our listeners, you can remember you can now get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. Well, a very good show, and uh, Craig, uh, look forward to talking to you again next week with another interesting legal topic. We'll be back, and when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.